Hi there, welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Danny Denton, I'm the editor of the Stinging Fly, and I'm joined on the podcast today by John Patrick McHugh, author of the short story collection Pure Gold, which is published by New Island Books here in Ireland and Fourth Estate in the UK. John Patrick is from Galway, and his work is featured in Granta, The Stinging Fly, Banshee, Tangerine, and Winter Papers, among others. He's currently guest editing an issue of the brilliant Banshee Mag. Hi, John. Um, how are you? Hey, Danny. How are you doing? You're out in Barna, right? In Galway. How's, how's the day looking in Barna? It is very sunny, and I'm just after closing the window because my dad's after doing the lawn mowing, even though I told him I was doing this. <laughs> Lawns are being mowed on every patch, on every acre of the country, I'd say. Um, so in each podcast, we ask a writer to select a work from the Stinging Fly archive, which all subscribers to the magazine have access to via our website, stingingfly.org. Uh, and we then take a forensic look at the piece that the writer has chosen. So John, do you want to tell us briefly what you've chosen um, and maybe why you've chosen it? I have gone with the brilliant Sean O'Reilly's brilliant story, All Day and All of the Night. I've picked it because... I just vividly remember reading it for the first time and just being struck by both the language and the emotions, but also all the tricks that I kind of notice in short stories um, and just how well it flows. I just, I just think it's a, an excellent, truly excellent short story. Fantastic. Um, so you'll now hear John Patrick read. We're not going to get a chance to read all of it. I think it's quite a long story, but you'll now hear John Patrick read an excerpt, I guess, from All Day and All of the Night. Exactly a month after Siobhan had been told by a good friend of ours that I was having an affair with a leggy, flat-chested, doe-eyed singer, I was allowed to move back into the house. In the meantime, I'd been staying at my sister's, on a mattress in the games room, lying awake all night with the French doors open, listening to the birds in the trees along the river, big-sounding creatures I'd never heard before. It was the beginning of another summer, when word came through that I'd been granted a reprieve, I could go home. My sister Melissa gave me a lift with my gear, which amounted to one bag and my guitar. I suppose I was nervous as hell, my head busy rehearsing all the things I would need to say and do to save my marriage. Because when the car stopped, I jumped straight out, went to the boot for my stuff and had the guitar on my shoulder before I realised we were actually parked on the street right outside the house we'd grown up in. Would you look at the state of it, Melissa said when I sat back in. Look at the roof. Look at that letter box. You wouldn't put a bloody court summons through it. And those are the very same curtains, if you ask me. They are. Our curtains are green, I told her. Big, long, pale green velvet things. We Auntie Lou made them. I remember having to go out to the back shed to get the step ladders to put them up. I remember how scared I was of the back shed. You're scared of your own shadow most of the time. You were. Melissa lit up a cigarette, holding it out the open window. The houses seemed to have shrunk and the street was as narrow as a country lane. Melissa was parked well up on the pavement. We stared uneasily at our old front door like we were waiting to see ourselves come charging out. It was tiled. No number on it now. A saucer on the window ledge. Melissa ditched her smoke and began her spiel. Listen to me, Mark, okay? I just want to say this one thing more more to you, and that's all. You're doing the right thing. You are. I know I've said that already, but we all think it, all of us, the entire family. But I just wanted to say this one thing more to you, just between me and you, so don't take my head off. But if you need anything, a loan of any money or anything, then you should just ask, okay? It's just money. Don't be bottling it all up, okay? You see what happens when you do. Don't be driving yourself mad with worry. You're always so useless at lying anyway. There's a strange thump on the car's back window. A young woman who couldn't get by along the pavement with her pram the way we were parked. The child started crying, screaming. Do you hear me, Mark? Melissa said, starting the engine, paying the young mother no mind. She had steered the pram into the road, giving us a die slow look through the glass as she passed. Graham will divorce you if he catches you smoking again, was all I could manage. There are many other ways I could have replied, and not all of them would have been kind or grateful for the offer of money, but Melissa had taken me in for the last month, fed and watered me, kept the wine flowing and stayed up late with me, even got her old fiddle one night. Then again, I was around her dinner table, 
Melissa presiding, that the rest of the family gathered to work out what was to be done with me, all eight of them rolling up in the driveway after work and before lunchtime at the weekends. It was an official family crisis. My marriage needed to be saved. Melissa would report back back on her conversations with Siobhan, the shrewd, delicate negotiations, and it would be agreed by a vote what my next steps should be. And it was Melissa who went to see Greta, cornered the warbling hippie home wrecker after a gig, threw the bus timetable from Dundalk at her, as I found out later. Back home, still unpacked, and sitting at the kitchen table with Siobhan after our dinner, it was me who brought up the idea of getting out of town for the weekend to do whatever talking we needed to do down the road in Inishon. Siobhan's people owned a place down there, right on the coast. Siobhan had bought them out a few years back. We'd put a lot of work into it since. Siobhan loved the time away, from the city, from me too, I suppose. Anyway, she laughed off the suggestions to start with, saying, you hate it down there, sure. You never know what to do with yourself. No? When was the last time then? You haven't been down there since around last Christmas, and that, which didn't escape my attention, was only because we bought other people with us. All I have to do is mention Inishone, and a look of dread appears on your face. Sure, you haven't even seen who moved into the big house in front of us, the big house you gave out about for to your friend blocking our view, and then never mentioned again since. Strange, don't you think? Well, there's people moved in now full-time. Year-round, I mean. A middle-aged couple with their children. He's some hotshot accountant. Or he was. The weekends are tricky, you know, I said. Really? Why is that, I wonder? She looked at me, her head to the side, suffering in one eye, anger in the other, and then she let me off the hook with, Well, the weekends are all I have, Mark. Will you please try to get that into your tick skull for me, will you? Whether you like it or not. And it's not going to change either. No doubt about it, Siobhan had studied and worked hard since we had made the move home from London. A full-blown cliché like it sounds. She stopped to talk to me one May Day morning when I was picking my way through an old kinks floor filler on the steps of a squat near Holloway Prison. She heard the accent. She came in for a cup of tea. She was easy with everybody. She left for the tube and came back again ten minutes later. She stayed the night. And now she's a solicitor. Right from the start, she said she felt aimless in London, bored, guilty, and she wants us to go home to try to put something back in, to do some good. She persuaded me that it would help my songwriting, get back to the source, she pleaded with me, and soon enough, it was the mantra I began to use on myself. Less than a year after meeting her, we were driving up through England and Scotland, to the ferry with all her possessions, most of them hers, in a car that wouldn't start again when it was time to drive off the Larn. People got jumpy. They thought it was a bomb. The cops arrived. Siobhan and I were questioned for hours. She threw away a lot of her clothes afterwards. Back at the kitchen table, I took hold of my wife's hand and ran my thumb in circles around the underside of her wrist, round and round over those prominent branching blue veins. Come on, Siobhan. It'd be good for us. Sea air, walks, your garden, the beach, swimming. It'd be good for us. Will it now? Will it really? You who never goes near the water. I'll be the first in. I'll wear the swimsuit even. Promise. Come on. A chains of seam. Isn't this just typical of you? All this sudden haste. These brief enthusiasm. And then you change your mind at the last minute. She was mocking me. And fairly too. But I could see from the way she was blinking rapidly that she was thinking that idea over. Friday tomorrow. I can get away by two. But you see, Mark, if you even so much as... I'll have the car packed by two, I said, my right hand up to God. It was gone four, and after a stop at the garden centre for a few bags of compost, before we were on the main road out, the traffic was good, the music was good, the weather looked good. Siobhan had one of her major soap opera days. The cops had to be called to remove a man who had chained himself to the railings after being barred from seeing his children. Me? I'd been sitting around the house, playing old CDs and reading letters I sent to my as-then fiancé when she had gone to New York for those last few months of her brother's life. I pulled into the car park of the supermarket just before the Eurozone border and asked her, 
Remember the thunder and lightning on the drive up from Dublin airport with your brother? Siobhan looked at me. Aghast has to be the only word. An empty expression which filled quickly to the brim with rage. The hackles were up. How? Why would you even? She couldn't get the words out. Her neck reddened down into her cleavage. I did my best to apologise as we went up and down the aisles of the supermarket. Siobhan acting as if I was invisible, which only made me more desperate. I was trying to tell her how great it felt to have her back, that I missed her, just like when she came home after nursing her brother. She wouldn't look me in the eyes. With Siobhan, the trick is you leave things well alone. You don't mention the shit unless there's a damn good reason. Otherwise, you're being negative. I touched one of her sore spots and it would be a while before she'd get over it. People notice us. Me, anyway. A man blocking a woman with a trolley in the toiletry sections. Then the tin goods. We didn't manage to buy one complete meal. We forgot all the basics. Then she sent me off to buy the alcohol, which I took as punishment. Siobhan didn't drink much. She didn't like to go beyond two glasses of wine. Buying the hooch alone meant I was entirely responsible before the fact for the amount I would drink that weekend. Three bottles of wine I bought. Once we had packed the car, she put out her hand for the keys. I was relegated to the passenger seat. There was one other thing that happened before we turned off the main road and headed inland. We'd forgotten the bottle of gas. We pulled into a garage right on the shore of the lock. I went in for the gas. As I was waiting for a stone teenager to open the multiple locks in the cage where they kept the bottles, I noticed Siobhan was out of the car and talking to a man in the forecourt. He was a big guy, darkish, a gentle giant sort, late forties, with a huge Adam's apple. A bag of shopping in one hand and wiping his mouth a lot with the back of the other, like somebody had decked him for no reason. Siobhan put out her hand to touch his shoulder and he took a quick step back nodded in agreement to something and flip-flopped the way towards a green Range Rover, spitting on the ground before he got in. Siobhan, hands on hips, stood shaking her head until the big tank roared out across the cattle grid. What? Who do you mean, she said when I asked her a few miles down the road. Was he one of your clients or what? Your man back there with a bad taste in his mouth. What? She glanced at me, sighing. I'm only having a laugh, Siobhan. The man you're talking to, you're seen in close dispute in the parish of Moville with an unknown entity. How'd you plead? There was no dispute. Let's not quibble over wor- words. Will you identify this man for the court or not? Siobhan flipped down the sun guard and checked her face in the little mirror. That's Podrick, she said, rubbing Bam on her lips. And Podrick is our neighbour. We turned off the coast road and into the interior while she told me a bit more about him. He met a packet during the years they called the boom time for some and lost it all again in the, at the beginning of what they called the recession for all. Millions, maybe. It was well known he was in big trouble. The lights were off and on in the house all night long and she had overheard a few big rows. But he was nice, she said. He wasn't the overprivileged sort. He'd worked his way up out of nothing and he doted on his kids. I sang a few lines of Look Be a Lady Tonight as we slowed for the turn just after O'Darty's bed and breakfast. Another four kilometres on a road, no more than a gully between hedges and electric fences before we got our first sight of the sea. Siobhan got straight to work in her dungarees in the vegetable garden after we settled in. She would be at it for hours, so I tried to relax, to do nothing but just be there. I turned the Gibson Hummer, the very same guitar I was playing when I met Siobhan in London, opened the book about the history of the townland, destroyed the homes of so many spiders I felt sick, cleaned the barbecue, tightened the clothesline, and still only 40 minutes had passed. I got back into the rocking chair with the guitar, strumming, listening for a secret between the chords. The main window is a picture of pink-stained sheep in the field and the waves rolling in from the blue fathoms. Along the horizon, the freight tankers like moving targets. A speedboat as well. The sky was nearly pure. And off to the left was a new neighbor's ranch house. The raw concrete back had eight windows. A short, busty, blonde woman came out the back door with a bag of rubbish. 
I saw her turn around suddenly, and it was because Podrick was in the doorway, speaking to her. She waved the bag in the direction of the wheeling bin. Podrick stepped outside and approached her with his hand out. He wanted the bag. He was given the bag. He pointed her back inside, and she obeyed. I watched him untie the bin bag, inspect the contents, close it again, and put it in the bin. For another few minutes, he stood there looking at his own house like it was an animal he was going to take on, or a mountain. He cast a long rage gob of spit towards a rook on the wall. Then he went back inside his castle. Siobhan and I sat outside to eat that evening, sheltered by the gable from a wind fresh from the northeast. As the clouds moved in overhead, we ate burgers and I drank some wine. Our conversation was mainly about the house. The many jobs needed to be done. Siobhan wanted to extend the vegetable patch. The ground would have to be turned. The stones picked out by hand. It sounded like a job she might allow me to do. The weekend was already mapped out in her mind. She liked to keep busy, especially in the daytime. Up with the birds and to bed after the evening news. Well, it was her way of getting through and it worked. I said it to her. I love the way you get things done. You just go right at them immediately, they appear. You don't put things off the way I do, and that's brilliant. Maybe, she said, but I'm a bit of a control freak though, aren't I? I am. I hadn't expected that from her. It was rare to see a Siobhan expose her own doubts. I got out of my chair and squatted down in front of her. I took her hands, turned them over and kissed the blue veins. I'm so sorry, I told her. This is all my fault, not yours. Genuinely. Maybe our lives are going in different directions, Mark. I don't believe that for a second. How can you be so sure? You've turned into a liar, haven't you? And I've turned into this woman who... I never felt so my own before. I never knew this kind of loneliness even existed. That's why we have to stick together, Siobhan. That's what the world is like. I got into my head you didn't really need me anymore. And that I was holding you back. I wasn't thinking straight. Am I cold, Mark? Is that it? I know I'm mad busy and try tired to pieces when I get home and I just want some peace. But I thought you're happy enough doing your own thing. Your music, the band and all that. Were the signs all there and I just didn't want to see them? Hell, I feel like such an idiot. We took a walk down to the store before it got dark. On some stretches of the road, we had to run to escape the swarms of insects. The hedges were almost too ripe with berries and flowers and nettles and a hundred different birds shot out of every space, singing and whistling and showing off around us. Only the downstairs lights were on as we passed the neighbor's house. All the windows closed and the curtains drawn. The range were over out front. I thought it was a bit unusual on a fairish evening to see smoke spraying out of the chimney and even pointed it out to Siobhan but she's preoccupied with trying to explain to me how the ground had moved under her feet the morning that good friend of ours stormed into her office to tell her what type of man I really was. Further down the road to the bend, I thought I heard footsteps behind us, someone running, maybe I did see a shadow crossing the road. When I looked back, or maybe it was only a fox or a clumsy bird. The big soup was coming in fast. The water swelled up under the seaweed, throwing the tentacles high between the rocks. Way out on the cliffs, the young gulls were playing their bone whistles. Siobhan and I sat in our usual spot on a bed of soft heather on top of a black crag. Crab shells broke under me as I leaned in close to kiss my wife, and I got the brush off. I need you to understand what it was like, she said, meaning the month we'd been separated. How she couldn't get the images out of her head of me and some other woman. She went on to describe the scenes in so much detail, even I began to forget they weren't real. I could almost feel them, the wild lovers, hear their salty bodies sliding together until they were worn out, their souls long before their bodies stopped. Of course, I tried to cut in, but Siobhan needed to tell me everything, frame by frame, while the sea bulged and bubbled and burst against the rocks. I wanted to tell her the truth. And nothing had really happened between Greta and me because no matter how hard I tried to put it to the back of my mind, I was just too flooded with guilt about what we were doing. These orgies of passion my wife was meticulously inventing lacked any resemblance to what had actually gone on. Most nights I saw Greta in her B&B on Spencer Road, sneaking up to the road, 
up to the room like a teenager and lying beside her on the plastic cover mattress and talking about music and books, her own poetry and anything that entered my head to delay the moment when I have to prove myself. Talking became a way to avoid touching. Words were there to stave off the other words, the real words, or to cover up the gaps where there is nothing. But Siobhan didn't want to hear any of that. One night down here by myself again, guess what I did? She goes to me, biting her lip. So it was funny then. Not really. You don't have to tell me, I say, which brings on a bizarre fit of laughing. I want to, she says, to tell you. Okay, I'll pull myself together. But again, she's laughing. and I play the waiting game, watching the bloated seaweed lolling about in the soup. Finally, she tells me, there's this one very bad night, worse than the rest. I felt so poisoned by it all and betrayed and worn out. I dragged myself into bed somehow anyway. And after a while, I got up and opened the window. I lay there just listening to the silence, not a peep out of the wave or the wind. And there wasn't a car on the road anywhere. You know, I can just about hear them at night. Even those damn gulls were quiet. Just this total silence pouring in through the window and it getting deeper and deeper and deeper, like it was on a boat and it was sinking. You like silence, I said, and got shushed immediately. So that time I must have fallen asleep, okay? But when I got in the morning, what did I find? The front door was open too. Fuck, you mean someone broke in? Again, I seem to have said the wrong thing. She elbowed me. No, you're not listening to me. It wasn't a breaking. Nothing like that. You know as well as I do that I've never left a door open in my life. You know what I'm like about security. I double check everything, sure. There's a first time for everything, I said. Jesus, Mark, why are you being so... I didn't forget to lock up. I must have got up in the middle of the night and went down the corridor into the living room and opened it in my sleep. Me. I went back to bed. I've thought about it and thought about it since, but I don't remember doing it. But I sort of remember feeling of doing it. Does that make any sense? The feeling of doing it, but not really the act itself. I think it was me, Mark. Whatever it's about what she was saying, and the waves and the seaweeds, and the crab shells, and the lights, the freight ships on the horizon, I couldn't take another second of sitting there. The mozzies are eating me alive, I told her and got up. Siobhan told me to go on, said she'd follow me in a few minutes. She just wanted to sit there by herself for a while. I didn't argue with her. I thought nothing of leaving her. I hurried back up the road. Going by the neighbours, I saw a flash of flame in the car. Podrick was having a smoke. It might have been a pipe. The driver's door was open, the house in darkness. I waved to the man, but it was too dark to be sure if he returned it. As soon as I got in, I was searching for my phone. I took it back outside to under the oak tree, the only spot where you had a chance of a decent signal, and checked my messages. Three from my sister, one from Xavier in the band saying we might have a gig at a festival, and one from Greta asking me to meet up with her. I decided to take a bath. It was an excuse to keep by myself. I had my fill of talking for one night. The bath, salmon pink and shallow, a med for two jacuzzi. Think of a big shell, an oyster shell maybe from one of those Botticelli paintings, the round-breasted goddesses hovering above. Siobhan and I had dreamed of spending cold winter nights in the bubbles. The thing arrived wrapped in horse blankets on the back of a lorry. I poured in lots of bath oil, watched the foam expanding, replicating itself without sense. When I opened the window, I could see Siobhan and Podrick clearly talking together in the vivid, flat light from the car's interior. I shut off the taps, then the light, and waited to hear or not hear what they were saying. The next morning, there was a flower on the pillow. You just heard uh, All Day and All of the Night by Sean O'Reilly. It was originally published in issue 20, volume 2 of The Stinging Fly, which was the New York issue, and came out in the winter of 2011. Sean O'Reilly is the author of Curfew and Other Stories, Love and Sleep, The Swing of Things, Watermark and Levitation.
The story was just read by John Patrick McHugh, author of Pure Gold, and John is our esteemed guest on the podcast this month. Um, John, let's talk about all day and all of the night. Um, firstly, how did you go about the selection? Like when we asked you to to do the podcast, how, what was your thought process? Yeah, no, I was, I was delighted to be asked. Um, I hope to see you fly, but I suppose when you, when you initially asked me, I started thinking like what when I think of this thing in fly, what do I think about? And I think of just great short stories, obviously, but also like a freshness and newness. I do remember coming across Sean O'Reilly for the first time. And I know Sean O'Reilly is an established author, but I was, I hadn't heard of him until I read one of his stories. I was like mm. transfixed by how good he was. And I was in two minds in this and another story uh, by Michael Nolan, because Michael Nolan is, was a voice I just found purely from Stinging Fly, whereas Sean O'Reilly did have an established career. But I, I had to come back to the story again and again, because I do remember the first time reading it and just being in love with it and kind of like both, you know, impressed and also a bit jealous about how good it was, which is always a, a decent sign for Yeah, story. that's the marker, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Jealousy is the marker. And, and, I, and I just, and what I love about it is that it's a short story that, on its kind of superficial level, you could say it's a classic short story. But I also, I think it's really doing a lot of really interesting things with the form that kind of spread out of the form. So it's not just a short story. It seems to me a, something a little bit more in a, in a very beautiful way. And obviously the language, what attracts yeah. any piece of writing is always going to be the language. And the language in this is just so intense and precise. Yeah, yeah. It's marvellous. And I think you mentioned when, when before you read it, you were saying about your kind of the tricks involved in, that, in, in kind of doing those things and pushing the form um, in, in sounding kind of, I hate when we say things sound effortless because I, you know, we're both aware as writers and, and editors of how much effort goes into these things, but it does seem, it just seems so, so authentic, so easily come to or something by the time it's done. Uh, are there particular aspects you want to talk about in terms of those in terms of those tricks and, and pushing the form and things like that? Yeah, no, and I, I, there is, and I I think that effortlessness is like one of the hardest things to come across. I, I remember just on a kind of on the same kind of level. I remember hearing someone say before about Sally Rooney's prose, like, oh, you know, it's not poetic, or you know, it doesn't have these. And I was like, my God, it's the most poetic prose going. <laughs> you know, it's so straight and to the point and and and, and beautiful. In the same way, I, I, I put Sean O'Reilly's prose in that. Yeah. There's some wonderful imagery in here. There's some the musicality of the piece. It's just sublime. And you could tell this is a man who's crafted this story again and again. I suppose the things I, I, I really want to talk about this story, and I'm going to have to spoil it a little bit, is this story has a really kind of interesting ending where an incredibly tragic event occurs where the neighbor Podrick, I get apologies for spoiling this if you haven't got, haven't read the whole thing yet. Podrick um, murders his, his wife and kids. And before he mm. commits suicide, he calls the, the guardie because he doesn't want to go to hell. And what I love about the story is obviously that is like a brilliant moment in fiction, you know, it's dramatic. You're like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. And I remember being very shocked by it. Yeah. But I suppose yeah. what's, the tricks when I think of this story is that I actually don't think that's the interesting thing about this story. That's not what the story is about, actually, is it? Yeah, not at all. And it's almost forgotten. The relationship between Siobhan and Mark is so interesting that mm. this moment of big drama—you know—you can't get bigger than murder, family murder—and it yeah. is sad. And you do encounter Project enough that you kind of have like it's not just oh, and he shot someone. You know, there is like a relationship built up there. But yeah. I think it's a sign of a, a story that even though that's going on, it's not actually what the story is about. As a reader, it kind of lingers after, but what lingers is that relationship between Mark and Siobhan and how it's built up. Yeah, because it's not quite at the end, is it, Padre? Like it's kind of maybe the last couple of pages that the, the murder occurs towards the end of the weekend, but there's a there's still more afterwards and it does come back around to the to to Mark and Siobhan um, trying to make trying to make something of their of their relationship yeah and it's it's like you're almost haunted by that last image of Siobhan going to the front door rather than the image of a man murdering his family you know and it, again that just speaks to the, the power of, of Sean's words and what he's doing and I suppose one thing I find most interesting about this story is well I'm, I'm always curious about fiction or short fiction that on the face of it, it's about something but when you read it there seems to be other things that are interesting or other stories in the background that are 
coherent, that have depth, but they're not the main purpose because obviously a short story has to have kind of a, a main narrative drive. I'm thinking of people like Alice Munro, the way she can mm-hmm. spin a yarn where there's like these other stories in the background and they're as compelling as this main thrust of the narrative, but you only get glimpses. I think yeah, in this yeah, story, lots of little mysteries. Little, and this, I think this one, this story has so many little mysteries. You know, even just Mark's family, you know, that, that, that beautiful scene where they have the family meeting and all eight of them show up. And I love oh, amazing, that, yeah. where, where Greta gets thrown a bus timetable, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and, but, and it's just, it's, it's such a live piece of fiction. I, I'm like, personally, as I kind of get right more and more, that's kind of the fiction I'm interested in. Not so much the straight narratives, epiphany kind of stories, but the ones that kind of feel like a snapshot or something, they feel alive. Like I do think once you read this story, Siobhan and Mark live on, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you mentioned, you mentioned um, kind of vivid, vivid details at certain points and you've given a good, good few examples there. And one, one I loved was um, the lights on in Podrick's house all day, all night long, the, the, the lights beyond that kind of detail kind of, there's so much going on. It means like that there's a whole other story going on in that house and it's just one little detail. But I think there's it's something interesting, really interesting that you mentioned that, those kind of things, because I think, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, trying to finish my own book. And it's it's to do with, it seems to me to be something to do with authenticity, like that a story like this, regardless of what's at stake in the story, what the themes of the story are, it just feels, as you say, so lived. It feels so authentic. And that that kind of, maybe I'm taking words out of your mouth now and changing them, but that kind of seems to be the aim more than, like you say, a straight story with an epiphany, that if you can, if you can get achieve authenticity throughout the thing, that that's, that's the most important thing. And I think, I think certainly new writers, like, when I would have started out, I never would have written like that. I would have written to kind of hit a theme and tell a story and get across some imagery, and that would be that would be my day's work done or something. Do you know? What, does that make sense? Oh no, completely. And yeah, I'm the same as you. I remember reading Arabic and like, okay, well, by Joyce and like, okay, well, that's how you should write a story, you know. And obviously, I love Arabic, but it is you don't. What I would say is you don't imagine the boy in Arabic beyond Arabic. He 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 ends in that marketplace giving out, you know, like it doesn't linger beyond it as much as a beautiful story. And I love it so much. Yeah. I am that authenticity of like feeling and almost believability that, you know, these things happen, you know, and I I think I suppose as well, you get a bit older and that relationship between Mark and Siobhan. Imagine if I read that when I was 21, 20 and not to sound like an old bugger here, because I'm only (laughs) 29, (laughs) but you know, the flaws that are in that relationship that are in pretty much every relationship, and yet, you know, you keep going. Um, and I yeah. believe it's the authenticity. And that's what's, it's, yeah. it's funny. Like, I think it says a lot about us as people, as humans, you know, to make a murder mystery not be as interesting as a relationship between a man and a wife, you know, a cheating yeah. man and a wife is remarkable. And it comes back to, yeah, the pros, the believability, the sense of voice that Sean manages to uh, embed in the, the fiction while also having, you know, structure while having beautiful images while having like coherent and uh, consistent kind of like metaphors or, or, or sense of place is, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And like, you yeah. know, I've read on the back of reading some of Sean's work in, in, in Sting and Fly and, and, and anthologies by Sting and Fly, like I've bought his collections and, you know, it's just across every story that's, um, that's true, and he's just—he's—he's he's a remarkable writer. Uh, That's—I'm—I I'm, can't since since I started kind of reading and rereading this in preparation for the podcast. I can't shake the conversations between Mark and Siobhan, where they're both—I mean, they—they've obviously come back after was it a month of separation, and uh, the two of them are just making such a massive effort in the conversations to be intimate. They're trying to like—he's trying to give him to, to comedic levels. He's trying to connect to her by just telling her things talking to her complimenting her when he brings up like that moment when he brings up the brother um do you remember that time you went out to your dying brother (laughs) she's like what and it's just it's such a it's a hapless attempt to connect 
to connect with her, but it's a, like just the idea of them trying to reestablish things and the way Sean has that dialogue, these two people constantly reaching out to her. Like she opens up quite a bit as well. She obviously, she's quite guarded at times, but there's, it's, there's a sense of what's where her head's at by how much she is or isn't opening up. And he's trying to open up and making some ground and then losing ground by doing silly things like bringing up the dead brother. And it's just, but it's just stayed with me. I've been thinking about it every hour of the day since since I started rereading these because it strikes me like that that kind of that's kind of, there's something in that that's like both authentic of course but it's something about storytelling as well like that if we can connect if we can mm. communicate and connect we're going to be okay or something and it feels like the similar a similar thing is going on with their relationship if they can start connecting to each other again through talking then they can achieve a kind of intimacy again and then they will be okay type thing. I'm not sure. No, I think you're right. And it, I definitely think like their struggle for words. And Marx is really, like, there's so many, like, I, I always probably underestimate, you know, you talk about a story and you can get very serious and stuff like that. But, you know, this is a lark as well. It's very funny. Yeah, like, yeah, there's some great true. lines. And, like, Mark, as much as he's a very serious voice, if you look at him objectively, like objectively, he's a clown in a lot of instances. In yeah, this. yeah. Let's talk about him. He's. I. I love the idea of um that you mentioned it earlier. His whole family getting around the table to sort his life out. You know, <laughs> and even like that's a brilliant moment. Like you know, the whole family being like, "Well, you're going back to her," and we've decided, and like they're making his hard choices. But even um that great scene where they go for a swim and he goes in bollock naked, as you say. And he starts playing football with 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 the, with the boys, and there's a great thing. Is like I don't know how long I I was going to keep the charade going because he has her swimsuit, but he did, yeah. you know it's just this like comically childish uh, male narrator, but it's really subtle. You know, like you'd read some pieces and they're good, but like that that childish man would be the the forefront. He'd be like you know clowning you know all the time. Yeah, yeah. You almost sense like in in lesser lesser skilled hands that the 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 writer would make a joke of the character. Like Mark is not a joke, but no. he's a clown. Do you know, like we're not laughing. Well, maybe we're laughing at him at times, but Sean O'Reilly certainly isn't laughing at him. Sean is presenting him like this. These are the things he says and thinks and does. Yeah, um, and, and, and we should clarify that he's not bollock naked playing soccer. He's put his shorts back on, <laughs> and he's left. He's left her bollock naked in the sea. But yeah, um, no, completely right. And there's a serious to Mark, while also he's a really comical character. In the same way, you know, all of us are like that. There's a seriousness mm. to us, but we're actually we all make mistakes or we all do silly things. And it's just having, I suppose. I, again, I, I suppose the bravery as a writer to present that, you know, to be willing to. Yeah you know, give someone like that so much space. And he has some beautiful like thoughts and lines that all feel real. They don't feel heightened. They, they, yeah. they seem like they're coming from the same character that doesn't know why he he's not giving back the swimsuit to his missus. You know, it's, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 Jesus, my heart was bleeding. Um, and it again comes down to, I guess, Sean O'Reilly's empathy for his, for his characters. When he, talks about when Siobhan is imagining and telling him she imagined all these things that himself and Greta were doing and he's saying geez I almost forgot that that wasn't the truth that actually I was just talking to Greta because I didn't have the guts to go through with anything or whatever you know like that 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 he felt that pathetic in himself or whatever that he didn't want to put his money where his mouth was he didn't want to go through with things like that and he was trying to talk it just like I don't know, you shouldn't feel sorry for, for adulterers, I guess. But like you're just thinking about God, yeah. In in and I mean this in a positive. Like it's so pathetic, mm. like but 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 lovably pathetic. Or I care for him based on the fact that I think Sean cares for him and and portrays him with care or whatever. I, I yeah. Yeah, because it's an interesting one about uh, with sympathy for adulterers. I'd probably say you should, but it's interesting I because I don't think Mark ever wants sympathy, and I think that's a really hard balance. He doesn't have even yeah. that confession. That's coming from a reaction, or it's coming from th the flow and a, a truth. It's not coming from um, oh, let's all feel sorry for for Mark. And the story is really good in terms of it doesn't have a character justifying anything. Like his yeah, affair yeah. is an affair. He owns up to it. He apologizes. Even, you know, the great moment where he goes to a party and he kisses her and the next day he tells Siobhan straight away. It's just, 
it's just so interesting about a relationship. And I think as much as Mark is is such an intriguing and clownish and fun and serious character, like Siobhan is such a powerful presence. I find myself haunted more and more by her um, and just her, what she gives and what she's showing and how much she's revealing of herself. You know, Mark isn't as revealing to her as she is to him. You know, she, she's bringing up these awful truths. Um, and I, I, I just think that final image of her going to the door in the night is just perfect. It's just so yeah, perfect. She's checking the door. Do you have a, do you have a theory about what's going on there? Because it's, it was only in the rereading that I noticed that, that she tells that. I remember that she told that story about again, making this huge effort to open up to him and to be honest with him. And she talked about, I went back to the house, went to bed, woke up the next morning, the front door was wide open. And he's like, oh, was it, were you robbed? He's like, no, I must have done it in my sleep. There was some, there's something really weird going on there. And then at the end, she's going back. The very end of the story, she's checking again the front door as if like she's kind of checking, has she messed up? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't. Yeah. I, the I, beauty I, of that ending is that it seems wide open. Yeah, I don't want to go into theory, like, like it feels like, like it does feel ghostly, and then like that's a really hard thing to pull off in a very domestic and, and realistic story. But that ending just kind of haunts me. I don't have any theories. I suppose my one theory is that I feel like they'll stay together, but it's not going to be smooth. <laughs> it's going to be rocky as anything, or they'll keep trying yeah, to work yeah. it out. But I do. I'm the same as you. It's like you know, you can read a story and you think it's a good story, and you move on. Like there's nothing against that story. You just think it's good. You move on. This is a story that since I've read, I have thought about it and like images from it keep coming up. And I don't think it's like a flashy story. You know, it's not trying. Even the big dramatic moment is understated. It's a fact. It's, it happened mm. around this relationship. So I'm kind of like, like you, I'm a bit like stunned and fascinated why I keep thinking about it. And that story of her waking up, it's like a ghost story, but there's no ghost, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. That's brilliant. And and that's something like you mentioned earlier about uh, Sean already kind of pushing the, pushing the form. Again, I, 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 when I think about it, myself as a new writer or other new writers out there, you'd be very reluctant to make a short story. You'd think of short stories that can't be dramatic. They can't have big things happen in them. Right, because that's they're supposed to be quiet. And there's particularly Irish short stories. They're supposed to be supposed to be quiet and pensive and thoughtful, and everything's supposed to be restrained. And here, Sean gives you a, a not quite a, mur- a murder suicide, but a, a, what, do, what do you call it? Basically, a guy murdering his whole family, um, and it's smack bang in the in the story. And there's no apologies for it. It's a big wham bam moment, but it's not actually really what the story is about i'm sure the story is there's something there's some connection between Podrick and mark as kind of failing failing husbands or failing men even but that's not really again like you say the core of this story is mark and siobhan and their relationship i mean that takes brio on it but it's a lovely lesson i think to new writers as well to big things can happen in stories and the stories don't even have to be about them if you don't want them to be. Completely. And there definitely is. I'm sure maybe Sean, if you listen to this, he's tearing his hair out because he's probably, <laughs> because they do have a conversation oh, about yeah, love, yeah. Podrick and, and Mark, and it's a beautiful conversation. And Podrick. They do. They kind of echo each other, don't they? they echo, yeah. And Podrick's like a really menacing figure, you know, and even just the image of him smoking in the, in the car. It's just like, that's such a small image. And yet again, I'm like, Jesus, that is frightening. Maybe yeah. because I know what happens after, but it's, it's a beautifully image and yeah i think it's a, it's a funny thing because when you do start writing s- stories when you first start writing um i think you you have this idea of like oh i better have pretty language i better have like you know a really interesting mm. metaphor but you often forget that you're meant to have stuff happen <laughs> you know it's a story <laughs> you know yeah, you have yeah. to tell a story and i think this yeah as you said it's a great example that it has this massive moment but it doesn't take over from the core emotions, from the real feelings of the, of the story. And he also, it, I say, if you give this story to anyone else and you're like, okay, I want a relationship that's rocky and also a guy, the neighbor next door shoots his kids and his wife. And someone be like, Jesus, that's a novel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, so like you've a short story collection out and we'll talk about maybe you're, you're working on, um, you're editing, you've been editing Banshee for quite a while. That's going to come out soon. Do you have in your head an increasingly clear idea of what short fiction 
is supposed to do or does or can do? Or does it become increasingly blurry then because you think you can do anything basically in short fiction? Yeah, I think maybe a bit of both. I'm definitely more aware of the possibilities of the short form and more confident. And I think confidence is such a big thing in writing. But I'm also, in a funny way, I'm less sure of what a short story should do now than when I was when I was first writing 21, 22, where I, I was pretty certain how a story should look. I do still have like broad ideas <laughs> that a, a short story has to make you feel something or it has to have some sort of emotional rift in it. Yeah. But yeah, I'm less sure in terms of structure. And when I kind of come to write now, I, I do try to kind of have less control of the characters and kind of see what happens. I, I, I'm not really interested in things being wrapped up anymore or like having an epiphany or have someone kind of suddenly, oh, I look at the sun and I thought that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I yeah. want stuff to happen, characters to feel something. And yeah, the, the authenticity, I want, you know, I, I really want it to be believable and real and raw. Like It's funny, when I look at the collection, and I'm sure if, if, if you're kind enough to read my collection, I don't think anyone who reads it would think, think this, but when I look at it, I, I see four stories. There's eight in total. I see four stories from when I'm young and then four stories from kind of what I'm trying to do now um, in terms of like just rules for my fiction and how I write and what I'm interested in. And, you know, I'm less interested in describing things. I'm more interested in kind of making characters do things and things happen. Again, I think that only happens, only occurs to writers with time and with writing. Cause I do think you almost have to remember that in a short story stuff has to happen. I, I genuinely yeah, yeah. one one thing I've noticed, and when I read emerging writers or even submissions for Banshee, it was like these beautifully written stories, but there's no story in them. You know, nothing happens. Yeah, yeah, it's that is a fascinating insight actually into pure gold because uh, it's not something I would have picked up on dividing it in two like that. But certainly, when I was when you had picked this story, I was thinking about pure gold, and I was thinking. I wonder has this would this have influenced John at all? Because the, the all day and all of the night came out ten years ago, so I don't know when you would have read it, but it's around a while. So I was thinking, I wonder how how much this might influence him. And I immediately thought of um, the the title story, Pure Gold and Horfrost, as two stories where you really are on the edge of your seat as to what's going to happen. You know, like like it's not kind of a it's not um. It's not a pop boiler, but it's like the relationships in, in say, in the example of Horfrost, the relationship between the two, the husband and the wife is so authentic and wonderfully built that you are just on tenterhooks for the last five, six pages of that story. And again, don't want to give it away for people who haven't read it, but you just so desperately want to know what what's going to happen and what it will mean for that relationship. And the same with Pure Gold. Now, it's different in that it's not a relationship. There's more of an antagonistic thing going on. But, I mean, you kind of, because you have, what's his name? Is it Dicey? Is it Dicey in Pure Gold? Uh, oh, Ziggy. 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 And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ziggy and Dicey, yeah. yeah. And you are so kind of, you become intimate with, with Dicey, a, a flawed narrator, let's say, um, a flawed friend so quickly you're so intimate with him so quickly and he feels so authentic it is so authentic that by the end of it again like something is happening beginning to happen and you're like oh my god oh my god oh my god how is this going to turn out and uh, i would be very well i won't put you on the spot now but i wonder if the four um a priori stories are the four four a posteriori stories but um i, I won't name the four because I, I do i'd keep the like you know you can figure yeah, it out yeah, send yeah. me a fan mail and I'll, I'll tell you exactly but uh no like sean's work i always find it funny when i think of like influences on my work because a lot of the influences like I think there's obvious ones like obviously like Kevin Barry, Colin Barrett, anyone who writes a short story these days are going to be under those shadows. But then there's other influence where I just don't write anything like them, but they <laughs> they have like changed how I thought about writing. Like someone yeah. like Claire, Claire Louise Bennett, Pond. Yeah. Like, that was a huge moment to read that, but I won't be, I'm not able to write like her, you know? No, but it gives you permission. I mean, it gives it, she's a writer that gives you permission to like Completely, go yeah. for it, like do what you like kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and Sean was the same reading his stuff and you kind of see the gaps he leaves in his stories or the trust he has in readers. And there is like, and that's something that I kind of, with, 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 with writing, I kind of trusted reader more and more. And in both those stories, 
it got to the point where I kind of, I had to, both of those stories, especially Horfrost got rewritten like lows, like Horfrost got really well done. Like again, like I remember when I first wrote Horfrost, I had like maybe like 2000 words just describing the feckin' drive to the house. I was like (laughs) having a great time. I was describing everything (laughs) glittering and gleaming and whatnot. I remember someone reading it being like, but you know, what's happening like you know then it's like it's it, it, it sounds so simple to say it but as a as a as a new writer that was a big moment for me to kind of remember oh yeah a reader is going to read this and they might like the description from be a line or two but you can't just give them reams there has to be some purpose and i suppose sean's story the one i just read has that purpose is beautiful language yeah. but it always to a purpose it's always feeding towards an emotion or a story and that's something that I think it, it takes a while to get there, but it's definitely a, a big influence in how I write now. Like as much as I love describing things, it has to be for purpose now. And that, you know, if I, if I really want to describe a field, I'd just write a poem. And even if I wrote that poem, probably people would hate it as well because I don't think poetry is interested in it anymore. But it's, it's, a, it's okay, a, funny, yeah. a funny evolution in writing, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so then just maybe give us a brief give us a brief sense of how that has filtered into your work um, on guest editing and guest editing the new issue of Banshee. Has that been large in your thoughts or is, does it become much more try and get, try and help the writers to get the stories right in whatever way they need? No. Yeah. I, I wouldn't ever put my own prejudices on people about a story. You know, I, I suppose like it's a real honor t- to edit and read people's work, you know, and as, as, as you can testify as well. So, when I read yeah. the story, I, I read it like I, there was like 500 submissions. It was amazing. Uh, I read every one hoping it's the best story. You know what I mean? I never went mm. in being like, oh, this is, oh, this is set in a farm. You know, farms are done. You know what I mean? It was never like anything like that. I went in being like, oh, hope this is the best story. And I read it for, for what it is and hopefully how the writer wants to present it. It was only really what it came to. Like I gave notes to a few people and that was my maybe a couple of my notes just like, well, we need to get to the story quicker. You need something to happen to justify yeah. this lovely language, you know? Yeah. Um, but in when I came to editing, again, it was that kind of same principle of like, I want to help you get it to the way you want it to get. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll have suggestions. And sometimes my suggestions are just like, well, we need reason. We need some reason for the story to keep going. Um, but yeah, it's something that, you know, I tried to maybe not tell writers but maybe just show that if you have a bit of a story <laughs> your life's easier you know it's more exciting because i do think it's 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 a funny thing and i don't know if you agree danny but i remember when i started writing it was and it still is for myself but i was submitting stuff that like only i would you know get find enjoyment from it or maybe someone who's really into the description i was into might enjoy it you know and you kind of yeah. have to remember it's a short story the story parts as important um, but no, it, it didn't make me pick a one story or the other. But it, like, it, it's probably advice I give. Um, but it, it, it's it was just part that. of your approach, yeah. And it's just that though, because you know, as to go back to Claire Louise Bennett, you know, if I told her, "Oh, give me more story," like <laughs> it's like you know, I don't think that yeah. would help her. You know, yeah. so it, it it goes from writer to writer, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all about all about serving the idea, getting getting the stuff helping the stuff to sing whatever song it wants to sing I suppose um, well geez we'll look forward to that now um, and uh, I suppose it's time to say thanks thanks for for a great reading um, for a lovely and enlightening chat um, we should also say thanks to our producer Ian Malini um, to the Arts Council who support everything we do um, and to you the listeners there's a subscribe button there somewhere on your screen if you liked this Um for now, I suppose just yeah, one more time. Thanks a million, John Patrick. And take care, everybody.